regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of Datacast. And today I have the pleasure to speak with Frank Ken. Frank is the owner of Sundog Education, teaching machine learning and data science online to over 500,000 students around the world. Prior to Sundog, Frank spent nine years at Amazon as a senior engineer and senior manager, specializing in recommended system and later running the engineering department of IMDB. He also worked in the early days of video game development, dating back to the adventure games of Sierra Online in the early 90s and has also developed computer graphics software for fly simulators and military simulators around the world. Today, Frank is focused on the world of online education. Uh, he's living in the Orlando, Florida area with his family. So yeah, Frank, uh, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. Fantastic. So yeah, I want to start out talking about sort of your educational background. So you, uh, you got your bachelor in electrical engineering from the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth like almost 30 years ago now. So yeah, yeah, can you just describe your undergrad experience? Man, I feel old now. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, gosh, you know, it's kind of weird because a lot of times what you go to school for is not what you end up doing, right? So I went to school for electrical engineering. I have never done anything with electrical engineering in my career, but that doesn't mean it was wasted, right? So I guess the main thing that I got out of my undergraduate experience was just learning a really good work ethic and time management. Because to get my way through college, I was also working full-time at a, a health insurance company. So, you know, I, I go to school full-time doing electrical engineering, which is not easy. And then I go from school to like the night shift at this job for eight hours a day as well. And uh, doing that without going crazy uh, <laughs> teaches you a lot of hard lessons, right? So mm-hmm. uh, the diligence, the, uh, the perseverance, the grit, the work ethic, and the time management that you sort of like are forced to learn in that sort of a situation those are, are things that will serve you well throughout any career, right? So mm-hmm. it, it wasn't time wasted by any chance. And also back then, electrical engineering degrees were sort of accepted for computer science related, related jobs. Mm-hmm. So I was able to use that electrical engineering degree to get my foot in the door for my first computer programming job still. Fantastic. As you mentioned, you um, sort of get your foot in the door doing a lot of uh, software engineering stuff. And in particular, you know, after that, you spent close to a decade doing game development for a string of companies, including Sierra Entertainment, Looking Glass, Wars.com, and uh, SDS International. So can you just comment on your experience working in the game industry overall? Oh, yeah. Those were interesting years for sure. I didn't realize it was close to 10 years. Wow, that was a big chunk of my life. But yeah, it was it was a real honor to be a part of Sierra Online back in those days. I mean, uh, these were like some of the very first graphical video games that existed. You know, this, these are the people that did like King's Quest and Police Quest and Quest for Glory, but anything with Quest in the name, you know, <laughs> Sierra did. And, you know, a lot of people really enjoy those games and they're still playing them today. So to, to be a part of their creation is something I'm pretty jazzed about. But it was a really weird experience. It was weird in an awesome way though, right? So first of all, you know, I, I had to move from my home in Boston out to the middle of nowhere in California. 
So, you know, just that experience alone will change you, right? You know, I went from living in the place that I grew up to literally just outside the gates to Yosemite National Park in this town in the middle of nowhere where they collected this like really eclectic group of engineers and uh, game designers and artists and musicians all in one place. And um, it was a real eye eye opener, right? Just being exposed to that kind of diversity, not just in the environment, but the people, you know, you'd be working alongside people that were like Disney animators for like old Disney cell animation films or, uh, you know, a a composer who had like a collection of Emmy awards on his desk, you know? So it was a real eye opener to like, you know, what a very diverse and different people, different group of people can build when you bring them all together. Awesome things can happen. Mm -hmm. We might visit this later on, but, uh, how how is the game industry evolved? I guess like since you know you you were evolved with like compared yeah. to like these days, yeah. Just what? Oh yeah, it's changed mean? a lot. I mean, as far as the work environment goes, I think it's still a very demanding field to be in. You know, I mean, I remember you know sleeping at the office a few times back then, and I don't think that's changed very much. Uh, but the technology has changed a lot, right? So you know, back then we were writing very low level code, even in, in assembly language. And that's where that compu- uh, electrical engineering degree came in handy, actually, just having that low level knowledge of the hardware was actually important to have back then. Whereas today, people are generally building on top of game engines. So, you know, they're using tools like Unity or Unreal to develop these games, as opposed to actually writing them from scratch in C or assembly language. So, you know, that's really changed the, uh, the makeup of the people that are working on games and how games are made. Uh, the budgets are still huge, though, um, even more huge than they were then. I mean, these were really big, expensive projects back in the day, and they're even bigger and even more expensive projects now. So, you know, it's often been compared to making a movie, and that's a, a, pretty, a pretty accurate comparison. I see. In 2003, you moved to Seattle to work as a software engineer at Amazon, where you contribute to the personalization system that recommends products to customers at a scale of 10 to thousands of records per second. So how did this opportunity come about and what are the significant challenges of uh, building out this personalization system back then? Yeah, wow. Um, so that was like a huge shift in my career, right? Because I was doing like game development and uh, simulation and training work and all computer graphics stuff up until that point. And I found that, you know, after seven years or so, you tend to get sick of whatever it is you're doing. So uh, that was starting to kick in with me in the world of game development and computer graphics. You know, things got a little bit frustrating at my day job and I put my resume out on the internet one day out of frustration, monster.com or something I think it was back then. And uh, amazon.com in Seattle gave me a call out of the blue, which was unexpected because I had never done anything related to e-commerce or websites or anything, right? But the thing about Amazon, which is still true today, I think, is that they don't really care so much about your specific technology skills. They just want to find people who are smart and can solve new problems that haven't been solved before and have the, the determination and the, uh, the engineering fundamentals to solve those problems, whatever they might be, right? Fortunately, they saw that in my resume somehow. And uh, they gave me a call. I did a phone screen, you know, hit out in my car during my lunch break to talk to these guys in secret. Um, and that led to a, a, them flying me out for an, in, an in-house interview out in Seattle. And yeah, so that's how I got my foot in the door there. Uh, they brought me in as a senior software engineer. And initially I was working on things like their system that keeps track of the top sellers on amazon.com. And uh, I moved pretty quickly to, uh, if you've ever been on Amazon, you've probably seen like people who bought this also bought, right? Uh, so we called that similarities internally. And that was the, uh, the technology that I worked on. This is back, you know, when this is kind of a new thing, mind you. So that <laughs> was kind of a, it was, it was sort of a novel thing. But yeah, that's an example of like a, a totally new problem that no one had done before, right? So they couldn't hire people that were experts in recommendations because there weren't any. They just tried to hire people who, who could figure stuff out. 
And uh, I just built on that, you know, throughout my career. Um, I ended up as a senior manager at the end, you know, running entire teams doing this stuff and ultimately running uh, imdb.com's engineering team at the end. I see. Just want to kind of emphasize on that part you just mentioned, you know, recommended system was, was very new back then. And, and so like, how did your team, you know, like what, what, what's the process of like finding new approach and or like seeing other companies doing like, what are the actual challenges of actually getting something that new into, you know, into production, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, there were two main challenges. One was figuring out the algorithms. Um, like I said, this is kind of a new thing at the time. Uh, there was some academic research that they built upon in those early days at Amazon coming out of the University of Michigan, I think it was. Uh, so they had a group that was like, you know, trying to figure this stuff out and they kind of built on top of that. But, you know, they had to figure out what actually works in the real world. Obviously, Amazon has a lot more data than anybody else about what people are actually buying. So the quality of that data is really unsurpassed. So, you know, if you want to try new algorithms, it's hard to imagine a better place to test them out. But the even bigger challenge is getting it to scale, right? So it's one thing to write a fancy algorithm that can predict what you want to buy. Uh, it's quite another to do that is, like I said, at 10,000 requests per second. And, you know, Amazon obviously is huge. It's just an unfathomable amount of people hitting that website uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And vending those personalized recommendations at that rate turns out to be the, the hard part. And mind you, back then, we didn't really have things like Hadoop or... Uh, you know, distributed systems or, you know, even things like Docker or um, Kubernetes didn't exist back then either. We had to invent equivalent technologies from scratch. And mm -hmm. that ended up being, you know, the real hard part of the job. I see. Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot for sharing some of the um, war stories back in the day. You later on became a senior manager at, uh, at Amazon, in which you led multiple teams related to uh, recommended system and content management, both directly and indirectly. So, you know, during your time as a manager, how did the uh, Amazon recommendation and content optimization technology evolve? Incrementally, you know, Amazon had kind of a, a unique approach at the time. And I think it's still pretty unique. What they would do is that they would form these small teams around a specific problem. And in our case, the problem was making recommendations better. And the expectation wasn't that you would, you know, have these like big ideas that would just fundamentally change the world every day. Um, they just wanted like slow and steady progress over time because, you know, slow and steady wins the race, right? So that's what we did. You know, we just kept out trying new algorithms, new variations on algorithms, uh, different uh, UI treatments, different placements of our technology. And actually, that's what had the biggest effect, you know, just changing how these things were presented to the end user, how they looked, uh, at what part in the process of buying something did you actually surface these recommendations. Those turned out to be more important than the actual algorithm itself. But, you know, we just kept experimenting. And really, the, the approach was just to keep trying new ideas as many as possible, measure the effect that they had in as controlled a manner as possible, and, you know, be able to present to Jeff Bezos every quarter, hey, this is the progress we made. Isn't that awesome? And hopefully, he agrees with you. <laughs> Definitely, that incremental improvement and getting buy-in from, from technical leadership. So those are sort of the key lesson that you get out from, from the spirit, right? Yeah, it's not always, you know, this big aha moment, you know, like it's usually almost all innovation, I would say, is building upon some earlier innovation. And if you just do that in a continual structured manner, uh, then things just get better and better over time. Between 2010 and 2012, you know, you move on to leading the division of uh, IMDB, which uh, is a whole another organization, but it's a, a subsidiary of Amazon. So in particular, you led the engineering organization to execute a mobile strategy and even move the code base towards a service-oriented architecture. So yeah, what are some of the core engineering challenges associated with your work at IMDb? Well, you kind of hit on it right there. So um, 
first of all, it was a really fun place to work. I mean, it was kind of like, you know, this intersection of technology and the movie industry. Like, you know, can you imagine anything more fun than that? <laughs> it, was, it was awesome. Uh, great bunch of people there too. You know, it was kind of like where all the uh, the best people in Amazon kind of ended up, you know, after after several years. So it was a really, a really fun place to be. But yeah, I mean, the main challenges were, uh, first of all, IMDb had been around for a long time and they were acquired by Amazon, you know, like 20 years ago or something. Uh, so they came in with like this really legacy code base that wasn't really built to scale very much. Um, and as it grew over time, of course, this became more and more of a problem. So we had this like really old uh, technology that was built on the Perl programming language, I think it was. And uh, part of my challenge was to modernize that into a real service-oriented architecture using Java at the time was our choice of language. And um, that's a hard thing to pull off, you know, from a management standpoint, because you need to convince the powers that be that you should fund my very expensive engineering team to make our technology under the hood better. There's no like real immediate tangible benefit for that to the customer. Uh, but it's really more about preparing yourself for the future and making sure that the technology we have can continue to scale to serve those customers going forward. So that's a tricky dance to play as a manager, you know, kind of like just getting the resources to invest in that. Uh, fortunately, we were successful and uh, that did get built out. The other part was, you know, adjusting to the reality of mobile applications becoming important. Um, you know, this is going back to a time when, you know, smartphones were just becoming a, a big thing, <laughs> you know, it's, mm -hmm. it was that long ago. And um, yeah, we actually created the first uh, mobile app for IMDb. It's still running on my phone today. I still use it every day. Um, and hopefully a lot of other people do too. Uh, but that was an interesting pr uh, problem as well. Credit for that really goes to one of the managers that worked for me though. You know, I don't really want to take too much credit for that mobile app because um, uh, this guy, Alice, kind of ran his own team uh, in charge of that, that reported to me, but he did all the heavy lifting on that. Awesome. Yeah, thanks a lot for, for sharing that. So you, you spent over uh, nine years at Amazon and, you know, this is during a period where, you know, it's, it's uh, probably, it's, it's not as big as it is today. Um, yeah. Um, I guess, like, what would you say to be your, your proudest accomplishment there during that period? Yeah. Ooh. So from a technical standpoint, it's probably what I spoke to earlier about that sort of steady progress and improvement that we saw in the underlying recommender engine. So, you know, if you can take a feature like people who bought also bought, which generates an incredibly large percentage of Amazon's revenue, I can't tell you how much, but it's a lot, you know, even a small improvement in that is like, you know, millions or even billions of dollars over time. So, you know, being responsible for that sort of an impact, um, not just on Amazon's bottom line, but also on like the experience that we deliver to the customers, uh, that's something I was proud of. And being able to go in front of, you know, Amazon senior management, including, you know, the richest man in the world today. Um, he wasn't back then, <laughs> you know, and, and having him say good job, you know, that, that, that meant a lot. So that's something to be proud of. I'm also proud of the team that we created there, the environment that we fostered, you know, from, from a managerial standpoint, you know, I felt like we created a, a very positive environment within my group where, you know, people felt like they would be listened to and, um, you know, engineering challenges or any challenges that employees were facing uh, mm -hmm. would be met with uh, an open, you know, attitude and, uh, and a real willingness to try to solve those problems. So, um, yeah, I'm proud of our results and I'm, I'm proud of the environment that we created too. I see. Yeah. Related to, to that second point about the, the team environment. So yeah, Amazon is pretty well known for the 14 principles in mm -hmm. the, the culture. And I think everyone yeah. who apply or who interview for the company has kind of go through that process of evaluating for each of those access. So, you know, I'm just curious, like, uh, what, what made the, the culture of Amazon distinctive compared to like other big tech company and wh why is it, you know, uh, such a big things such, such that, you know, they even like have a blueprint for, for, for interviewing and hiring candidates to, to meet those requirements. Yeah. 
Yeah, those uh, leadership principles, we call them, are really important at Amazon. And, you know, I think what sets Amazon apart is that they really take them seriously. Uh, so, you know, they actually, every year, you know, you get evaluated on how well you embody those leadership principles. And, you know, if you're not embodying those leadership principles, you're going to hear about it from your manager. So it's not just lip service. You know, these are a very a set of very carefully thought out uh, principles that guide everyone at Amazon, how they approach their work. And, you know, that comes, you know, trickle down all the way from the top from Jeff. So yeah, that's what really is unique about it. And number one on that list is being customer centric, you know, really focusing on the customer experience. And I think that's another thing that's really unique about Amazon's engineering culture is that you're not just developing technology for the sake of technology ever. You're always starting with what impact this technology is going to have on the customer's experience. You start every project writing a press release where you say, okay, if I were releasing this to the world and trying to explain to my customers why it's a good thing, what would I say? And before you write one line of code, before you even start designing anything, you know, you have to think about that. And it really shapes how you approach that work and, you know, how you prioritize that work. That key emphasis on the importance of being customer focused and, and really be tools for, for the end user first. Yeah. And I would add too, that if you are thinking of interviewing at Amazon to really read up on those leadership principles, because yes, they're going to uh, ask you about tech- technical skills and test your technical knowledge but they're going to be looking just as much as how will you embody those leadership principles. So if they're talking to you and you're talking about building technology for technology's sake, instead of focusing on the customer experience, that's going to count against you just as much as, you know, flubbing up your coding exercise. So uh, there's a little interview tip for you there. Go read up on those uh, leadership values and be prepared with stories about how you've embodied those values in your past work. Absolutely. I'll be sure to include the, some of the resources on, on those leadership principles in the show notes for anyone yeah. interested. After leaving Amazon, you decided to pursue self-employment. You actually even described this transition in, in a book called uh, Self-Employment, Building an Internet Business of One. Yep. Could you mind sharing the story behind this professional transition as well as any specific advice on growing an independent business? Oh, yeah. Well, I wrote a whole book on it, so <laughs> I could talk a lot about that. So just to give you the story of what, what happened to me personally... So I spent nine years living in Seattle, working for Amazon, and it was a good career, you know, Uh, but I got to say the weather in Seattle is exactly as bad as they say it is. And over time, it gets to people and it got to my wife. So, uh, you know, I just couldn't make her, you know, live through that for any longer. So we decided to to leave and go move to someplace more sunny. In our case, it was Florida. So I had to figure out how do I make this work, you know, in in a responsible manner? How do I make sure that I can still pay the bills? You know, I had a wife and two kids to support. I had a mortgage, you know, I can't just up and leave and hope for the best at that, at that point in your life. So it turned out that I was kind of like fiddling around with computer graphics all those years on the side, just to kind of keep my coding skills up. And I realized that I could actually make a product out of this stuff. So when I left the, uh, the computer gaming and visual simulation and training industry, sort of an unsolved problem was how do I create uh, really good looking clouds and skies and, and water for uh, training simulations and games. So I was tinkering with that on the side just to keep my, my tech skills up. And so what I did when I realized that, you know, the writing was on the wall for our time at Seattle, um, I made a little website and started selling this as a software library, as a, as a product. And lo and behold, people bought it. So, you know, that was sort of a way to prove that I could actually generate enough income on my own to at least pay the bills or, or you know, get close to it. So... One big learning there is, you know, don't just stop and quit your day job if you have bills to pay. Uh, do it in a responsible manner. Make sure that you have at least three months of savings in the bank. Make sure you have something that will generate revenue or at least has, you know, a reasonable hope of doing so. 
And if you can develop that product on the side before you transition to Mm -hmm. self-employment. So that's kind of the main thing on how it worked well for me. You know, you just, uh, it's not something you do on a whim. You have to prepare for it for, you know, months or even a year. Mm -hmm. I read uh, one of your blog posts, kind of, you know, talking about some of these lessons learned and and I think like an interesting point, like a couple of interesting points that you raised is selling product is better than selling services, right? Yes. I'm just curious, like, can you unpack that? Yeah, that's a huge, huge point. To get started, sometimes you have to trade your time for money, you know, do some consulting work, do some freelance work. That's okay for a while. Uh, the problem is that that doesn't scale. You can never make more money than you have hours in the day to, to charge money for, right? So whenever possible, you want to be investing in creating online products or some sort of product that can sell itself while you sleep and has no limit to how much of it you can sell. So software libraries is one example of that. You know, I was selling licenses to these software libraries. Once I built that software library, all I had to do was maintain it. People would buy it and that's basically free money from then on forward. And I'm still making money from those, uh, those software libraries today. Uh, same thing with online courses. You know, we haven't really gotten there yet, but um, these days I'm selling primarily uh, online courses, uh, teaching people about machine learning and data science. And again, that's something that sells itself while you sleep and there's no upper limit to how many people might buy those. Uh, you know, today I've sold over 500,000 courses online. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, that adds up, uh, but it doesn't mean that I'm tied to my desk eight hours a day. Uh, it, it sells itself at this point. I just have to keep maintaining it, keep making sure that it's a good product and supporting it. But you know, I'm not trading my time for money anymore. And that's a really huge shift in how you approach things. Yeah. And then just quickly go over one, one another point. Uh, I think it was also very interesting that you brought up choosing lifestyle business over growth business. Yeah. Well, what about that one? That uh, might be relevant. Yeah, that's an interesting point too. I didn't like realize when I was working in the corporate world that there was any alternative to the growth business model. You know, if you watch Shark Tank or you like follow Silicon Valley startups, you think that's the only way there is to start a company. You know, you go out and you raise millions of dollars of seed money from venture capitalists and you hire a bunch of people and you hope you get something out the door before you run out of money or you hope you get acquired, right? Like one of those two things. Uh, But that's not the only way to start a business, right? Most businesses are actually what we call lifestyle businesses, uh, they're just self-funded by people, you know, and this includes people like people who start a restaurant or, uh, you know, start a landscaping business. It doesn't have to be technical for that matter. But if you can actually create a new business using your own resources, you don't owe anybody anything, you know, you don't have any investors to answer to. There's no pressure uh, to have a return on that investment anytime soon. That's a much more relaxing place to be in the long run, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm probably not going to make millions of dollars by selling my company because I went this route but I'm making a very comfortable living, you know, year after year as a result of taking this strategy instead. So my goal is really to have this lifestyle where I have personal freedom, uh, you know, where I can choose when and how and and where I work uh, as opposed to, you know, devoting myself to, you know, getting a return for these uh, millions of dollars that some investors pumped in. And the great thing about the world of technology is that it's very easy to do this, right? Uh, so it doesn't cost a lot of money to get started with a technology business. You just need a computer, electricity, and, and a website, right? And your own know-how and your own ideas. Uh, so, you know, the barrier to entry has never been lower. And, um, you know, you don't need to go out and raise millions of dollars to start your own company, guys. I think that's the, the, the big takeaway here. Absolutely. Your business, as you mentioned, working on computer graphics. So uh, it is called Sundorf Software. You provide uh, software for real-time, physically-based visual simulation of the sky, weather, and ocean. And in particular, your software has been used worldwide by major uh, defense simulation companies, video game companies, uh, architectural visualization, and broadcast video 
So can you share a brief overview of the, some of these products that you offer? Yeah, we touched on it a little bit. You know, basically, uh, there's two main products. One is called Silver Lining, and that uh, does visual simulation of uh, the sky and 3D clouds and weather effects, which, again, is still a pretty hard thing to do in real time. So we have a software library written in C++, and people can plug that into their training applications or their video games or whatever they have and get realistic-looking skies and, and clouds. So that's one product. Uh, the other is called Triton, and that's the same idea but applied to ocean simulation. So people doing things like maritime training applications, you know, teaching people how to drive a ship, uh, they find that very useful because we can very accurately simulate how the ocean reacts to certain wave conditions and wind conditions and storm conditions and swell conditions that they might encounter in the real world. And we do that in a way that's not only physically realistic, but looks real as well. So that's, that's what that company is all about. Um, and that's, you know, what I started with when, after I left Amazon and initially began my self-employment journey. Absolutely. So in 2017, you created Sundog Education, which is basically Sundog a brand for online learning. Right. So what are the pros and cons of being an online instructor? Oh, it's mostly pros. <laughs> that was a happy accident. So that's another example of kind of like your career taking you in unexpected directions, right? Uh, so, you know, I was out there happily making my little visual simulation software libraries and sell selling them and making a decent living. And one day out of the blue, I get a call from Udemy.com. They're like a big uh, online uh, education company. And they say, hey, we see you used to work at Amazon doing uh, recommender system stuff. Uh, we actually need some courses on that for our platform. You should try making one. And you know, the key when you're given an opportunity like that is to research it, do your due diligence, see if it's real or not. And if so, think about saying yes. You know, it would have been very easy to say, no, I'm too busy for this. You know, I'm, I'm doing this other stuff. But no, I decided to give it a try. And I'm glad I did. You know, these days, that's actually making a lot more revenue than the software library stuff, because again, it scales up so much bigger. There's, there's so many people out there that want to learn machine learning and data science and big data technologies, it turns out. Uh, so that ended up being a much bigger opportunity. So the pro, to answer your question more directly, first of all, is the impact. In my software library business, I was touching the lives of, you know, a few hundred people. But in the world of online education, I'm touching hundreds of thousands of people. You couldn't fit them all into the biggest football stadium in the world. You know, you need like three of them to get all my students in one place. And that's mind-blowing impact. And again, it's a case where you're not trading your time for money. So it fits into the larger strategy of building online products as opposed to selling your time. So, you know, it really scales up very well. There's no, there's no maximum to how much it can make over time. You just have to keep putting in a steady effort to making more courses, keeping the courses you have as good as possible. So it gives you that sort of freedom of lifestyle because it's a lifestyle business to work when you want, where you want, you know, and under your own terms, you know, no one's going to tell you what to do. So that is huge. The only cons are when you have an audience of 500,000 people, you start to run into some of the same problems that celebrities have, you know, some, some of those people are going to be crazy <laughs> and they will track you down. Uh, so, you know, kind of like, you know, managing my own privacy and, you know, having people to, um, sort of be a first line of defense against their questions and communications turns out to be a, a necessity at that scale. So that's, that's kind of the ugly side of it, you know, but when you get that many people, you know, a few of them are going to be difficult. Mm, I see. You, you know, start this journey of being an online instructor like a couple of years ago when things are, I guess, like, you know, most are still somewhat of a, a new concept. Yeah. However, at this current moment, I think online education is becoming the norm and right. there's so many other options, you know, you mentioned Udemy and you know, Coursera, Skillshare, like a bunch of other options out there. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question is like, what could be your advice for someone who new to the scene 
who want to become uh, an online instructor given this current climate. Yeah, it's definitely a lot more competitive than it was when I started, right? And uh, that's something you have to be cognizant of. So my best advice would be to very, be very careful about what topic you decide to teach if you're going to go into online education yourself. Uh, don't teach a topic that someone like me is already teaching because mm-hmm. I've already soaked up every student in the world that's interested in that, right? It's going to be very hard to launch a new machine learning course right now because not only me, but a bunch of other you know top instructors have courses out there that already have tens of thousands of positive reviews and you know, hundreds of thousands of enrolled students. How do you compete with that? You know, you can't. Uh, but there are always new technologies coming out that no one has taught before. So that's the stuff you want to watch for. For example, um, if Amazon Web Services were to come out with a new certification exam, that's a huge opportunity, right? If you can be the first person to offer a prep course for a new certification exam, sky's the limit for you, right? So the opportunities are still there. You just have to be you know, looking out for them and investing your time in kind of these green fields, as opposed to trying to compete with these established players that are hard to compete with. Definitely. Yeah. That, that definitely a, a very useful insight. Now I want to just, you know, move on to a couple of the, the specific uh, technologies that you, you taught and maybe we'd have some, some good discussion why you, you choose some of these topics to, to teach the student, right? So you have created various courses that focus on uh, Apache Spark, ranging from, you know, their Python and Scala support to uh, it, uh, Spark streaming capabilities. So why is Spark a vital topic to know as a data science and machine learning practitioner? It's probably more important than pretty much anything these days, if you ask me. I mean, I'm a little bit biased because I teach courses in it, but uh, to, to explain to your audience what Apache Spark is, it's basically a software platform for processing data in parallel across an entire cluster of computers. Um, and in the real world, that turns out to be the hard part, right? So a lot of people talk a lot about machine learning and AI, but the secret is machine learning isn't that hard these days. You know, the, the models are pretty well uh, evolved these days. Evolved is probably a poor choice of word there, but, you know, they're, they're, they're mature. That's a better word. And they're very easy to use as well. So, you know, you don't really have to have a strong mathematical background to actually apply machine learning these days. But the hard part is preparing your data that you're going to feed into these algorithms. That's where the real difficulty lies. You know, how do I clean that data? How do I, you know, parse out the data that I'm interested in? How do I, you know, uh, convert that into the format that these models expect? And that's where Apache Spark comes in. So when you're dealing with massive amounts of data coming in, which is going to be true at, you know, any large company that has a lot of customer data uh, flowing in or log data from their web servers, whatever it is, you need a technology like Apache Spark that can ingest that data quickly, uh, can parallelize the processing of it, and get it to where it needs to be in a reliable manner. So that's that's the role that Spark plays. Awesome. Another topic also in terms of big data that you have paid some attention to is uh, Hadoop. And in fact, one of your most popular Udemy course is called the Ultimate Hands-On Hadoop, yep. which provides uh, Hadoop tutorials with over 25 technologies, including things like MapReduce, Spark, HDFS, Flink, Hive, HBase, MongoDB, Cassandra, Kafka, and much more other. So what are some of the tools in the Hadoop ecosystem that you are most excited about, uh, I guess, like in response to the growing demand for, you know, large scale uh, data processing solutions? I mean, Hadoop ecosystem is kind of a a broad term and kind of ill-defined, really. It's kind of ironic that people still talk about Hadoop because Hadoop itself has largely fallen out of style. Um, Hadoop has, excuse me, a few uh, different layers to it. One is called MapReduce. And... No one really uses MapReduce anymore. It's kind of been replaced by Apache Spark. You can still run Spark on top of a Hadoop cluster, but you don't have to. You know, Spark has its own cluster technology as well. 
And you know, Hadoop has its own distributed file system called HDFS. That's still a useful thing. Uh, but increasingly, you see people you know, making less and less use of it. So you know, Hadoop itself is you know, kind of you know, being relegated by these newer technologies that have initially at least built on top of it. If you had to pick one that, uh, that is part of what I would call the ecosystem of that world, it would be Apache Spark. You know, I still think that's the, the technology that has the widest adoption. Uh, it's the most mature, and it's still under active development. So you know, I could talk a little bit about you know, kind of where the open source world has gone with projects like that, which is not a direction I'm terribly fond of, but um, it's still being actively developed, partially in the open source world, more so in the commercial world, but you know, that, that is what it is. Uh, but yeah, I, I think Spark is still you know, the most critical component of that world. You know, we talk about Spark, we talk about Hadoop, Another recent technology that I guess you've been focusing on is called Elasticsearch, yeah. which is an industry standard open source search engine. And uh, in fact, in collaboration with Manning, you have created uh, two live videos on the Elasticsearch 6 and Elasticsearch 7 alongside the powerful Elastic Stack platform for data storage and data analysis. I guess like why does Elasticsearch, you know, as a solution is becoming more and more popular as an alternative to analyze big data? Yeah, sure. And uh, that's actually a good chance to give a little shout out to Manning.com too. So uh, I think they're the ones that actually introduced us for this podcast. Um, they're another a big online education uh, provider and they have kind of a, uh, a unique offering there in that they have this sort of blended environment of online videos and the transcript to those videos. So you get, kind of get the best of both worlds of videos and books there in their platform. So, uh, you know, a little plug to Manning.com slash live video. You can find my, my works there as well. But one of them is the Elasticsearch course. So to answer your question, it's not really replacing Hadoop. It's, it's, they kind of, or Spark, they, they're kind of solving different problems, really. So Elasticsearch, first and foremost, is a search engine. You can use it as a search engine still. It, it does that. But it's really used more for getting real-time answers to relatively simple analytical problems. An mm-hmm. example would be like a log file analysis, you know, kind of like building out your own Google Analytics or something like that. So what Elasticsearch and the Elasticsearch stack is really good at is ingesting a lot of log data from a bunch of servers, ingesting that into an Elasticsearch server and presenting a user interface where you can very easily query that data and ask things like, you know, how many requests did I get in this hour? How many 500 hours did I get? Errors did I get? Uh, Where did those errors come from? Things like that. Just ways of, you know, sort of slicing and dicing your data in real time. Uh, That's a very different problem from what, you know, Hadoop or Spark is trying to solve. These are definitely going to be typically going to be larger tasks that are usually more focused around data processing than analysis. Um, The analysis piece of it tends to be more batch oriented. You know, you can do real-time queries in these systems, but they tend to be better suited to these larger, more complex queries that you actually need to like set off a job and, you know, get an answer back a few minutes later. Whereas Elasticsearch gives you instantaneous results, but, you know, on a more limited set of problems, I would say. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that differences. In your future courses, what, what are you going to focus on? Like what, what's, what are some of the new upcoming tools that um, I think that w- what's being um, evangelized here? Well, I'm, uh, I'm not actually making new courses on new technologies. Uh, the field has become pretty mature, quite honestly. Um, there's not a whole lot of like really big changes coming out. What we're seeing again like is that incremental improvements over time that I talked about earlier. So what I'm focusing on right now is uh, two things. One is updating that Elasticsearch course to have all the new features of Elasticsearch that have come out since we first made that course. And we've actually doubled the size of that course in its content recently. So um, there's a lot to cover there. Uh, They've added a lot of new features around how to visualize that data, 
ways you can ingest data. So there's a lot of exciting technologies there. Operational stuff is improved as well. The other thing I'm working on is updating my Apache Spark for Scala course. Um, and again, that's just updating it, you know, given the changes in technology. Uh, when Spark first came out, they had sort of this low-level API called uh, RDDs, and that's largely been replaced by a higher-level API that's more SQL-based. So uh, I'm going back and updating that course, re-recording the whole thing using a, a different development environment, you know, when it's more modern and focusing more on these, you know, newer APIs and less on the older ones. Awesome. Yeah, definitely looking forward to see some of those uh, options when, when um, you know, they're being published. Okay, so let's go back to, you know, one of the topics that we, we discussed earlier in, in this conversation, which is fragment system. Definitely, this is a topic that you are well known for, thanks to your decade at Amazon. So you have created courses, both at Udemy and at Manning about it, and even convert the materials into a print book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book is called Building Recommend System with Machine Learning and AI. What are some of the promising, I guess, like research and industry best practices of recommended system that you think will be massively adopted in the next three to five years? Yeah, so the, the biggest change recently has been kind of the shift to uh, deep learning in the field of recommender systems. So back when we did it at Amazon, we used a technique called item-based collaborative filtering. And this has been published, so I can actually talk about it. Usually things that Amazon does are super secret. <laughs> uh, but the basic idea of Amazon's approach was um, you take the people who bought this also bought data, right? So you have this like database of similar items. You know, what items are similar to other items based on purchasing behavior of our customers? And to make recommendations, all you have to do is take the list of all the stuff you've bought, you know, for every one of those things, get the people who bought also bought list and glom those all together. And you have a set of recommended items for that customer. And you can sort them based on, you know, how confident you are in those similarities, how many times a given product showed up in that list, things like that. So it's a pretty simple approach, right? Cut to today where everything is done with deep learning and neural networks. So, I mean, it's not a complicated thing to understand really how neural networks work. And we cover that in my machine learning class, uh, but it's a very general purpose tool, right? And it's very hard to understand what's going on inside of a neural network. So, you know, people lately have been applying neural networks to literally every machine learning problem. I think we're starting to get away from that fad a little bit. You know, people are starting to look at things like SG boost and things like that more so, you know, recommender systems has kind of fallen into that trap as well, where people are like, how do I take this technology of deep learning and, you know, fit it into this problem of, um, of recommender systems. And for people who can only hear me and not see me, I'm kind of like doing a square peg in a round hole motion here. <laughs> That's not to say it can't work. YouTube does it. Uh, Netflix does it very successfully. You know, they figured out a way to get uh, deep learning to work on sparse data sets. Even Amazon has done it as well. They have a tool called destiny now that actually does the same thing. Uh, how much they use that internally. I don't know. But yeah, that, that's the big trend right now. You know, how do we like apply deep learning to the field of recommender systems? And people are doing it successfully. I don't f- think qualitatively it's making a huge difference though. I think the real thing that recommender systems need to deal with in the future is how they fit into our, our society and our privacy, right? Mm-hmm. So recommender systems are only as good as the data that you give them. And the more data you give them, the better your recommendations are. So how much data do you want to give them? Do you want this right. recommender system to know every website you've looked at, um, everything you've ever bought, um, everyone you've ever talked to, uh, every place you've been, you know, uh, where we draw that line, I think is going to be the really interesting uh, direction of where recommender systems go in the future. Yeah, I see. Just onto that second point you mentioned. Well, I, I suppose there's probably like two ways to, to, to handle that first is to like mention using algorithms that can better deal with sparse data, mm-hmm. uh, you know, using things like that augmentation, you know, any approach that can 
do meta learning in, in the deeper analysis. The second approach is actually to anonymize data. I guess that's some of the current research in ML security and privacy preserving methods has also been quite yep. popular this day. I would just love to hear your take on some of those trends and potentially can compile with some uh, resources such as courses or maybe tutorials that people can learn to, I guess, be more aware of some of this uh, direction. Yeah, I mean, the sparse data problem is kind of its own separate beast. And uh, my course and book does talk about that, you know, how you can actually trick a, a neural network into working with a sparse data set. Um, so that's, you know, a solvable problem that's covered in that course. But yeah, you're right. There are ways of anonymizing that data and, you know, doing it in a, a way that does respect privacy. Gosh, it's been years since I've looked at papers about that, but they're out there. You know, I, I don't have a, a link offhand. But, you know, it's really less about what the algorithm is doing under the hood and more about how you communicate that to the user. You know, I found that as long as you're really transparent to the end user about what data you're using to make these recommendations and you give them controls to very easily select what information you do and do not want to use for that purpose, uh, everybody ends up happy. You know, you know what, what gets people upset is when, you know, it gets leaked that you're using some, you know, sensitive information from my behavior that I didn't know about, Right. But if you're just upfront with people that, hey, you know, this is the data you're giving us. Uh, in return, we're giving you these helpful recommendations. If you're good with that, cool. If not, here's how to, how to tune that. You know, different companies do that to varying degrees of success. But uh, I think it's really more important to have that transparency than to think about, you know, fancy computer science ways of anonymizing that data under the hood. I think it's very interesting that you mentioned that the bigger lever here is not focused on, on the algorithm, especially on communication and how the recommend system interact with society. And I guess like, it's very important as uh, data scientists and machine learning engineers to collaborate and, and interact with uh, UX designers, product managers, business analysts, or any other function within the company to, to make the system more, more successful when, when being yeah. deployed in the real world. I guess there any tips that you would recommend for some of the scientists and engineers who, who more technically matter to just become a better uh, uh, colleague, I guess, like team members, you know, when working with, with fellows, non-technical stakeholders, to ensure like a, a good result. Yeah. I mean, one thing that worked well at Amazon was that customer focus, right? So if everybody is like speaking in terms of the impact that a technology will have on the customer, that becomes kind of a common language that everybody can speak, you know, regardless of their technical background. So whether you're an engineer or a product manager or a UX designer, you can still have a conversation about how what you're building is going to affect the customer experience. So that's one way to, to handle those conversations, you know, really focus it on the end result as opposed to, you know, what algorithm you want to use and, and why that's a superior algorithm or whatever, right? And also just being cognizant of the fact that it's not all about the algorithms, you know, it, it's going to be more about the quality of the data going into those algorithms and how the output of those algorithms are presented to the end user to, uh, to dictate how effective and how big of an impact that algorithm will actually have in the real world. So you got to leave some of your engineering ego behind, you know, and uh, realize that what you're building is just one piece of the puzzle. Thanks a lot for that very valuable advice from you know, someone like you who had like years of decades of experience in engineering for maybe like, you know, people who knew to feel and was excited to, to make an impact. At this point, our conversation, I want to move on into the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire question. And okay. yeah, I just would love to hear your answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the machine learning universe whose work you admire. Man, you know, machine learning doesn't really have a whole lot of rock stars. Um, I'm going to turn to some fellow educators in the space. So people that I admire personally are uh, Jose Portilla. Uh, he's a, another popular instructor in the field of data science and machine learning. He's an, also a really great guy. I'm uh, proud to call him a friend. 
Kirill Aramenko runs a company called Super Data Science, and he's also a very successful online instructor. And, you know, I really look up to him in terms of his business acumen. And uh, also, I got to give a tip of the hat to Andrew Nig, you know, kind of the pioneer in this space at Coursera. And, uh, you know, Coursera, as you know, got its start, you know, doing machine learning courses. So um, those are my three heroes in the field. Number two, name one book that you would recommend for people to develop a better engineering mindset. You know, I got two books in mind. <laughs> so honestly, the book that I would recommend to engineers would be more business focused, you know, something like Lean Startup that really like drives home the importance of focusing on that customer experience, because that's really a, a transformative thing when you start to think of what you're building in that term. But for an engineering book, I got one sitting next to me here. O'Reilly recently published one called uh, Architecting Modern Data Platforms. And I was actually a reviewer on that book. But yeah, it's a really good overview of, you know, how to design these larger scale systems and not just from a technology and architecture standpoint, but also about how they fit into the organization as a whole. So one thing I like about that book is, you know, kind of that holistic approach of not just talking about the technology, but also the, the human side of the equation of how it like gets deployed within an organization. And then the last question is that, imagine that you send out a tweet to all the aspiring machine learning practitioners on Twitter. What could you tweet about? I would tweet about ethics, you know, making sure that what you're building is being used for good and not evil. And oftentimes it's very easy to inadvertently, you know, build something that's not used the way you intended. Um, you know, I mean, the recommender system technology that we developed at Amazon, a lot of those same algorithms went on to be used for advertising targeting. And, you know, some of that gone to some pretty shady places. So, you know, that's not something I'm proud of, uh, paying, playing some small role in that. So always, you know, keep in mind, you know, how is this technology going to be used? How do I make sure that's used for a positive impact on humanity? And uh, if it's not, what am I going to do about it? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a brilliant way to close our, our conversation. And yes, so Frank, I really enjoy our chat today just to learn about your decades working in the game industry, your time as an engineering leader at Amazon, building some of the pioneering product in recommend system, your transition into becoming a self-employment and running an independent business some of your work uh, on the online education space, very thoughtful knowledge in terms of the competitive big data and ML landscape, as well as some of the relevant advice in terms of how you can connect the, the technical jobs with caring for societies together to build better products that uh, actually impact humanity. So yeah, I'll be sure to include all the links to the show notes so people can have a chance to you know check out your, your website, some of the offerings that uh, Sundog Education is, is having as well as some of the uh, up-and-coming books, courses, and live videos that, that you have. And yeah, so Frank, I appreciate it, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, you too. Thanks for having me. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.